You don't have to go to church to be a Christian. Ooh, I wish that was one bromide that would disappear from our vocabulary as we walk our way through this crisis, this pandemic that we're in. The truth is, we are the church wherever we are. We are united in God's grace. I'm Dr. Chuck McGathy, pastor of First Baptist Church of Madison, North Carolina. Today, I am broadcasting live from the studio of Rockingham County Radio. I welcome you all to the radio church for the entire community. We love you all. Today, we will have prayer, scripture, a morning message, and a time of Bible study to help get you through until we meet again. This week, I'm going to also include some commentary from the community. So get ready, Bible, pen, and paper. But before we start to worship, I have one very important announcement. Really, it is a question some are asking. Is this the end of time? We do not know that. Jesus spoke to us in Matthew 24, verse 6. He said, about such things you will hear the noise of wars and the news of wars far off. See to it that you don't become frightened. Such things must happen, but the end is yet to come. Since the Middle Ages, there have been about a dozen notable pandemics, including COVID-19. The first of which, according to data compiled by the World Bank, was the bubonic plague. It killed 30% to 50% of Europeans in the 1300s. Then the introduction of smallpox in the Americas came in the 1500s. The first global pandemic was declared in 1881, when cholera killed more than 1.5 million people worldwide. Since 1900, there have been eight pandemics. The 1918 Spanish flu, a global pandemic, killed between 20 million and 100 million people worldwide. The HIV-AIDS pandemic, which was declared in 1981, is still considered an active pandemic. It resulted in 36.7 million deaths, according to the data from the National Institutes of Health. There have also been two epidemics that were not declared official pandemics, MERS in 2012, which impacted 22 countries but had fewer than 2,000 cases, and West African Ebola in 2013, which had nearly 30,000 cases but only impacted 10 countries. Is this bad? Yes. Is it a kind of thing that has happened before? Yes. Should we go on in faith and hope? Yes. So what should you do? Love God. Love one another. Let's start with God's love for you. I want you to know how you can know you are safe in God's love. If you have been thinking about your future, if you worry about God's love and acceptance, then I want to reassure you. I've been a Christian minister for nearly 40 years, and before my ordination in 1982, I was routinely involved in sharing the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
As a student of Jesus, I have tried through the years to understand what he taught and lived. I am still learning what all of that means. But what I know convinces me that if today you are fearful about death, if your future is dark and unknown, if you are concerned that there is something more you must do to get right with God, then the following will help you. The God of the Hebrew and Christian scriptures is a God of love. Humanity is God's creation. God loves his creation, and from the beginning of the Bible to the end, he is constantly seeking us out. In the beginning of the Bible, it tells the story of how humanity turned away from God, but God did not turn away from us. The story of Adam's and Eve's sin is important to understand. It teaches us about who God is. What did God do when the people he created failed to trust him? The very first story about human sin, rebellion against God, is met by this response. They, Adam and Eve, heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Please observe carefully, it was not humans that found God, but God who went looking for human beings. This is a consistent idea presented in many ways throughout the Bible. Sometimes humanity and individual people have been described by the term lost. That is not meant to be demeaning, but to describe our confused and hopeless condition. I think it means that in the final analysis, we cannot find our way through our fear and darkness without help. We only delude ourselves if we suppose that we can somehow save ourselves. Just like the first humans, we need to hear the voice of God asking, Where are you? In the good news story told by Luke, we read this about Jesus. He said about himself and his mission, For the Son of Man came to seek out and to save the lost. God is seeking you and me, even if you have been hiding, denying, rebelling against God. He is seeking you. Right now, no matter who you are, no matter how you have lost your way, God is seeking you. He wants you to know that he loves you and wants you to have life now and everlasting. What I have discovered in my life is that we all have a tough time believing that. We ask ourselves, how can I know God loves me? Sometimes it comes out this way. If God loves me, then why do such bad things happen? This is really two sides of the same coin. The result is estrangement from the God who is seeking us out. Even though God is seeking his children whom he lovingly created, his creation is hiding. Just like the first couple, we are cowering in fear and feeling lost. The way we answer God is, I can handle this. I don't need you. We might even tell God that this is his fault. Either way, we ought to consider a third option, a way proposed by the gospel story. 
This is how much God loved the world. He gave his son, his one and only son. And this is why, so that no one need be destroyed. By believing in him, anyone can have a whole and lasting life. God didn't go to all the trouble of sending his son merely to point an accusing finger telling the world how bad it was. He came to help, to put the world right again. Anyone who trusts in him is acquitted. Anyone who refuses to trust in him has long since been under the death sentence without knowing it. And why? Because of that person's failure to believe in the one-of-a-kind Son of God when introduced to him. The death of Jesus upon a Roman cross, was to convince us that God really loves us, values us, and will do anything to find us. The cross was not something that God needs or requires. The cross is what we need and require to come out of our hiding and accept the love and grace of God. Through the ultimate act of seeking us out, God sent Jesus to find us. To stay hiding from God is death and darkness. The good news is it doesn't have to be this way. What can you do? Come out of hiding. Trust him. Believe what he says. Live in love and faith as his beloved child. Spread faith and confidence. You may want to pray. You may want to get baptized. You may want to publicly declare your faith. You may want to demonstrate your belief in God's love by a change of thought and behavior. You may want to do any or all of these things. What I want you to know is that God is ready to find you right where you are. If you want to pray right now, if you are ready for God to find you, if you are ready to believe in his love and desire to help you, then here is a suggested prayer. God, I'm lost. God, I am afraid. I fear for the future for myself and the ones I love. I am at wit's end. I feel lost in the dark. Sometimes I might even get mad and blame you. Yet despite all, you keep looking for me. Through Jesus, you have shown me just how much you really care about me. Right now, I want you to know that I know I need you. I believe you love me and all people. And God, help me when fear overwhelms me. I trust you. I place my ultimate hope in you. I will do my best to follow you and help others who you love and need you too. May my faith in you grow stronger every day. Lord, I believe and live in you. Amen. Please contact me for support in prayer. By doing this, you will take a crucial step toward a faith-filled life. Remember the words of the Apostle Paul, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, you can mail me, and this is where the pencil and paper come in handy. You may email me at cpmcgathy at yahoo.com, cpmcgathy at yahoo.com. You may leave a phone message for me at 336-548-6112. 
please leave complete contact information. You can find us on the World Wide Web, and this is all spelled. This is all spelled out: www.firstbaptistchurchofmadison.org. If you'll do any one of those things and let me know, we will be in contact with you. Now is a great time to get your Bible if you haven't already. Get your pen and paper ready. Our worship today may inspire something you want to look up or remember later. Remember, the awkwardness and inconvenience of this may actually be a spiritually beneficial thing. God is among us, and His Holy Spirit is speaking to hearts. Hope is not only a life and death matter. Hope is a life in death matter. Hope finds its greatest challenge and shines its greatest light when life stands in the face of death and affirms that God remains trustworthy. Today's sermon text is from the Hebrew prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel is called to prophesy such hope in a valley of dried bones and lost dreams. And though I will not read the story of the resurrection of Lazarus from the grave, it is found in John chapter 11, and you may want to read it later. The psalmist proclaims hope from the depths as one who waits for the gift of a morning yet to dawn. Psalm 130 is our first reading, is one of the songs of ascents. And what is that? It was one of the songs that was sung as the pilgrims made their way to Jerusalem and possibly while even climbing Mount Zion or the steps of the temple. Now, listen to this beautiful psalm as we enter into our time of worship. Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you, so that you may be revered. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope, my soul waits for the Lord, more than those who watch for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is great power to redeem. It is he who will redeem Israel from all its iniquities. And now let's move into our call to worship. Coming from places that have seen better days, God bids us to celebrate this day, a day full of new possibilities. Coming with our breath taken away by grief, the Holy Spirit breathes new life within us, renewing our connection with God and with one another. Coming to worship, seeking a hope that will endure, Christ unbinds the fetters that hold us in death, speaking in word and sacrament and building community for holy service. Let us pray. God of life, present and promised, You are the one to whom we call, for you are the one who hears and you are the one who acts, bringing us new life with your grace and love and power. Lead us in our time of worship that we may be prepared to follow your lead in places where life is at risk, places where hope seems far away, places where dreams die during sleep. When we once again are able to leave our homes, help us live 
in the teachings we proclaim and believe and trust in. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Our prayer continues with our prayer of confession. Forgive us, O God, when we see the world through rose-colored glasses rather than as it really is. Help us live in facts and truth with courage and endurance. Forgive us, Holy One, when we forsake the faith that calls us to be agents of change in our world. Renew us with your grace and ground us with your spirit that we might be empowered to live right now in our present reality in word and deed as testimonies to the power of your love over the grave. In Jesus Christ we pray as he has taught us, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And now hear this word of assurance. The God we serve is the God of life, the God of hope the God of new beginnings, even for dried-up bones and shattered dreams. That rattling of bones in Ezekiel's vision may be heard as the shackles that once held us down in fear, sin, prejudice, and guilt. God defies these deadly entanglements with the power of life. This we trust, and by this we live. Thanks be to God. And let us all respond with intellectual and spiritual curiosity. In the midst of a valley filled with bones, amidst the stench of a tomb's death and decay, a voice cries out in the name of life and holy mystery. Life comes forth. These are the stories we are told, but are these the stories we will trust? Are these the stories we will live by? Well, finally, spring has arrived, and what a spring it is. I mean, have you looked outside lately? It is beautiful. It is the promise of God written in nature. It is the promise of life reborn. It is a promise we all need to hear and share today. Today we have a powerful word from the Hebrew prophet Ezekiel. I think it is as if he is looking at human hearts in our day as well. He writes of restoration, renewal, and resurrection. The title of my message of hope from the scriptures today is Dry Bones Dance. This is a message of faith, uh, the kind of faith we need to embark upon any journey of great significance. Today's scripture passages present our most compelling message. It is not only a message for us, But it is the message God gives to convey to the entire world. It is our reflection upon this journey toward Easter. Let's begin by hearing a reading from the book of Ezekiel about a vision of hope, renewal, and resurrection. You can find it in Ezekiel chapter 37, verses 1 through 14. The Lord's power came on me. The Spirit of the Lord carried me out of the city and put me down in the middle of the valley. The valley was full of dead men's bones. 
There were many bones lying on the ground in the valley. The Lord made me walk all around among the bones. I saw the bones were very dry. Then the Lord said to me, Son of man, can these bones come to life? I answered, Lord God, only you know the answer to that question. Then he said to me, Speak to these bones for me. Tell them, dry bones, listen to the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord God says to you. I will cause breath to come into you, and you will come to life. I will put sinew and muscles on you, and I will cover you with skin. Then I will put breath in you, and you will come back to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I spoke to the bones for the Lord as he said, I was still speaking when I heard the loud noise. The bones began to rattle, and bone joined together with bone. There before my eyes I saw sinew and muscles begin to cover the bones. Skin began to cover them, but there was no breath in them. Then the Lord said to me, Speak to the wind for me, son of man. Speak to the wind for me. Tell the wind that this is what the Lord God says. Wind, come from every direction and breathe air into these dead bodies. Breathe into them and they will come back to life. So I spoke to the wind for the Lord, as he said, and the breath came into the dead bodies. They came to life and stood up. There were many men, a large army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are like the whole family of Israel. The people of Israel say, Our bones have dried up. Our hope is gone. We have been completely destroyed. So speak to them for me. Tell them this is what the Lord God says. My people, I will open your graves and bring you up out of them. I will bring you to the land of Israel. My people, I will open your graves and bring you up out of your graves, and then you will know that I am the Lord. I will put my spirit in you, and you will come to life again. Then I will lead you back to your own land. Then you will know that I am the Lord. You will know that I said this and that I made it happen. This is what the Lord said. Just before the imposed isolation now upon us to defend against the COVID-19 pandemic, I had the joy and privilege of worshiping with my friends at Beulah Baptist Church in Madison. There were four speakers for the evening. Each one of us was asked with telling the good news through the perspective of a season of the year. I was fortunate enough to be given spring as my topic. I want to share with you a bit of that message now as we think on our need of restoration and revival. The season that precedes spring is important, but it is also hard. I do get weary. I do get sad. I do long for sun-filled days and the leaves to return on the trees. Sometimes it seems like spring will never come, but it will. I like that song by Tom Waits that goes like this. You can never hold back spring. You can be sure that I will never stop believing. The blushing rose will climb spring ahead or fall behind. Winter dreams the same dream every time. You can never hold back spring even though you've lost your way. The world keeps dreaming of spring so close your eyes. Open your heart to one who's dreaming of you. You can never hold back spring. Remember everything that spring can bring. 
you can never hold back spring. The most important image of the Christian faith is that of a garden in spring. And that dry and thirsty land comes with the return of warm weather and the westward blown clouds carrying life-giving rain from the sea. It was in a garden in the city of Jerusalem that life appeared. The tiny shoots sprouted from the invigorated soil. Miniature leaves of the brightest green appeared on the nut trees, changing their skeletal frames into a thing of hope and promise for a future crop. Even the small animals, the field mice and rabbits, played with delight. Soon their families would grow. It was also a place for people. It held a special attraction for the citizens of Jerusalem, so worn down by their world. They were not free. They felt the heavy oppression of the Roman Empire. The Romans felt that they were their superiors and carried out their policies with extreme prejudice. None was more severe or effective as the way they executed those who dared question their power. Crucifixion was a Roman specialty. It was everything the garden was not. It was death, painful, shameful, horrible death. When pitiful wretches were executed this way, the Romans wanted everyone to watch. They put on quite a show. The point was not simply to kill the criminal, but to kill the thought that freedom from Roman power was possible. In Jerusalem, the chosen place for this public death spectacle was just outside the wall of the city, in a high spot where two roads ran nearby so passers-by could easily observe the crosses and their impaled victims. Ironically, this killing ground is also quite near an impressive garden. Now there is one more important detail about this garden you must know. Because of its beauty, it was highly prized by those who could afford such things as a place to bring their loved ones when they died. The land of the garden contained tombs carved into the rock. These tombs, which could often contain more than one person, were sealed off by doors made of stones hewn into circles that sat in gutters and with great exertion were levered into place to close the tombs and thus prevent jackals and other plunderers from disturbing the dead. Their loved ones were carefully prepared and placed into the tomb. The point of the preparation was not to preserve the body from decay as the Egyptians did with mummification, but to allow the body to decompose naturally. In the course of time, perhaps a year later, the deceased loved ones would return to the tomb, lever the heavy stone from the door, and gather the wrapping containing just the bones of their loved one and then place these into a box called an ossuary. Thus, this was the final resting place of the individual. It was a costly process, but if you had the means, it was a loving and great honor. Jesus was crucified. He was not wealthy, but as it turned out, he had a friend who was. His family owned one of those rock-hewn tombs in the nearby garden, he wanted to provide from his own pocket a fitting funeral for this man who had meant so much to him and for whom he was deeply grieving. Normally, crucified criminals were not given burials. Normally, they were left hanging on their death trees 
and the carrion-eating birds picked their carcasses clean. Of course, this too served the Roman message. So it took some courage. But the rich man named Joseph appealed to the Roman governor to release the body of Jesus to him for burial. When he does, a protest goes up. The protest, though, is not from the Romans, but from his own people. The complaint was from the religious authorities who wanted the ignominy of his decaying corpse and feared that people might still rally to his cause by going to or even removing the body. The governor, Pilate, did not relent, but he did compromise and sent a Roman detachment of about six soldiers to put a seal across the door of the tomb to take a rope and seal the door by pressing hot wax with the imperial symbol upon the rock. No one could break that seal without permission from Pilate. If someone tried to break that seal, the guard was there authorized to kill. They cared nothing for the contents of the tomb. Their focus was on protecting the power and might and authority of Rome. Now you have the setting of the most powerful image the world has ever or could ever see. Cross. Death. Garden. Resurrection. Life. And remember, you can never hold back spring. Let me outline at least three common stories that I think are told today in and by the American Christian Church. These tales go around and around, but... They are worth examining to see if they communicate with accuracy the message of scriptures. Maybe they are not entirely right. Maybe scripture says something very different. Let me suggest to you then three commonly told stories in various forms that just may run counter to the message of our Easter hope. The first storyline goes something like this. The world is going to hell in a handbasket. Have you heard that story? It's been told again and again. Usually it means that all change is bad and our only hope is to retrench into the good old days that never were and never will be again. And by the way, most in our world are not buying that story. I recently saw a survey of young people who, facing all the problems that this world has to offer, still have an optimistic outlook for the future. Whenever we repeat that particular story, the story that says everything is getting progressively worse, we're losing our most important audience. What might be a better, more scriptural story? Let me suggest to you that what I think the Bible communicates. Its message says, we are all broken, but God will put us back together. Our best days are yet to come. Have you ever heard someone express this thought? The best day of the church has passed. All we have to look forward to is the great tribulation and Jesus' return. Not necessarily in that order. That too is a common story. And it is told over and over and over again. It is a gloomy story that by focusing on destruction fails to acknowledge the coming and glorious kingdom of God. Oh, and by the way, that particular story has been told so often and without specific fulfillment outlined by the storytellers that less and less people are finding it credible. 
Some have gone so far as to challenge the very idea of Jesus' return altogether. A better story, far better in line with the actual words of Jesus, is this. Jesus is coming, but until he comes, be busy about his business and don't worry about that ETA. In case you don't know, ETA stands for Estimated Time of Arrival, and Jesus told us, in no uncertain terms, not to speculate on when he's coming back, but to be ready all the time for his return. I could tell many, many more stories that are repeated over and over, both in the church and about the church, but time permits me to list only one more today. It is this. The church only wants and accepts the pure in thought and deed. Of course, all it takes to refute that is to know any one of us, to know we're not validating that story. In other words, we don't think purely, neither do we act purely. Straightening out that myth is a monumental task, but crucial if we're going to see the church move from decline to the missional organization it was designed by Jesus to become. Here is a far better story, the story I believe Jesus gave to us. We are a gathering of hurt, broken, sinful people knit together by our firm conviction that we can find God's grace together in this community. In that kind of church, there is room for sinners. The doors of the church are wide open and there are no purity guards at the door. In the vision of Ezekiel, Another story is told, and it is the most important story out there. It begins with the frightful experience of a man named Ezekiel who had a frightening vision. Perhaps it was a dream, perhaps it was a waking experience, but however it happened, the importance is found in what he saw. The prophet Ezekiel is brought by the power of God to a field of human remains. They have been dead for some time. All that is left are the bleached bones lying in disorder in a huge valley. Then he is asked the most amazing question. God inquires of Ezekiel, can these bones live again? And notice here that the prophet of God does not answer in the affirmative. Instead, he indicates his personal doubt when he says, Oh, Lord God, you know. By answering in this way, the preacher shows just how human he really is. Even he. God's spokesman has lost his hope that anything can be restored from the death spread before him. But our God is a God of resurrection. That is the story he tells. That is the story he urges us to make our own. That is the story he urges us to retell through our lives. So God tells Ezekiel to preach to the bones of the dead. I think there might be a lot of preachers this morning who sometimes feel like they're preaching to the bones of the dead. But note here, it is not the power of the words, nor is it the power of the preacher. It is the power of God to bring life back from death. So Ezekiel does as he has been commanded. And indeed, the bones are knit together. You can hear them clattering as they join their multiple parts. Skeletons fill out as sinew and muscle and flesh unite to form a human frame. Yet there is one more thing, one more action Ezekiel is commanded to do. So speak to them for me. 
Tell them this is what the Lord God says. My people, I will open your graves and bring you up out of them. Then I will bring you to the land of Israel, my people. I will open your graves and bring you up out of your graves. And then you will know that I am the Lord. I will put my spirit in you and you will come to life again. Then I will lead you back to your own land. Then you will know that I am the Lord. You will know that I said this and that I made it happen. This is what the Lord said. Throughout the Bible, the breath of God is always associated with His Spirit filling the human soul. Suddenly there are no longer dead, neither are there zombies without intelligence. They are human beings fully alive, ready to once again dance in celebration of the life God has given them. This is a remarkable picture, a picture to be told over and over again of the resurrection that God promises not only to Ezekiel, but to all of us. You see, this is not only Ezekiel's story, but it is our story as well. The same God that breathes life and made dry bones dance will do the same miracle for his children today. What does it feel like to be given up for dead? In what ways can God breathe new life back into a human being. There are some people among us who know exactly how that feels. Once I heard a short radio interview with a young Marine corporal and his wife. Their story was moving, I think because it echoes the story of resurrection. Marine Corporal Anthony Villarreal served in Afghanistan. In June 2008, his truck was hit by a roadside bomb. He suffered third-degree burns, severely disfiguring most of his face and body. His right arm and the fingers on his left hand were amputated. This is a common story, as we know. Anthony was 22 at the time and newlywed to Jessica, who was 21. And the couple sat down and Anthony recalled the moments just after the explosion. I remember trying to breathe, and I just felt like real hot, like I was on fire. They were dragging me on the sand, and there were rocks there. So when they were dragging me, I felt the rocks against my skin and my legs, and it hurt, but I couldn't scream. And so I just remember lying there, feeling the hot sun, and then feeling the wind from the helicopter come in. And the doctor said, you'll be home soon. His wife Jessica added, I remember when I first saw you. The doctors wanted me to identify you like you had died or something. You were covered in bandages, and I can only see your eyes and your lips. And then they showed me the extent of the burn and how I went straight to the bone. They told me we can't salvage the tissue, so I had to sign papers saying that it was okay for them to amputate. The corporal then added, When I woke up from that three-month drug-induced coma having to learn everything that a baby has to learn, I didn't even recognize myself. After the first time I saw myself in the mirror, that's when I just broke down. I literally thought that my life was over. I kept thinking, what was I going to do? How am I going to get a job? Then he asked his wife, what did you think about? She replied, I just knew that you needed me and I was going to be there. Were you ever scared that I'd leave you? In response, he said, yeah, I mean, it's hard not to think about that because a lot of people, they don't want to be seen with someone that ugly. What was it like? 
like 70 plus surgeries, skin grafts. I really didn't want to leave the house. I just thought to myself, man, people don't know how to ask questions. They just want to stare and point. I'm just glad that you're here to help me. <coughs> and then she said the most beautiful thing. I've grown so much over the past five years. Didn't ever think that I was strong as I am today. And most of it is from you. I can't imagine you not being in my life. And then the Marine Corporal concluded the conversation. We've been through so much in so little time. Shouldn't be anything that could tear us apart beside death itself. I'd like you to know that conversation between that young couple moved me to tears. You see, I heard in that a reminder that love is indeed stronger than death. That young man whose life was so damaged had every right to believe that he would never have the life he once knew. And what is so surprising here is that love has given him a better life than he ever dreamed possible. And God has done that for each one of us. When we were blown apart by sin and left for dead, He came after us and loved us back to life. It is like God is asking each one of us, were you ever scared that I'd leave you? Jessica's words to Anthony could easily be God's words to us. I just knew that you needed me and I was going to be there. Were you ever scared that I'd leave you? We see it in the story of the dry bones brought back to life. We see it in the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead, and we see it every day in the stories of redemption played out all around us. That is God's doing. That is his story for us. It is a story that must be written deeply upon our souls. In two weeks, we will celebrate the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. It isn't just a story about Jesus. It is the story Jesus has for us. He makes our dry bones dance. Now let me ask you a personal question. Do you believe? This is God's story for you. Will you accept it and live it through your life? Let us pray. Oh Lord, tell us a new story. A story of hope, a story of renewal, a story of enduring love, a story of resurrection. Infuse it into our souls. Make us like this shattered bones coming together in new life, filled with your breath and your spirit and the love of our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Now I'd like you to hear some of what I've been hearing. This is commentary from the community. I heard from my fishing partner this last week, uh, Randy Jessup. He told me about a 12-pound catfish he saw caught and let go into a farm pond a few days ago. He told me he would love to go fishing with me when we could. I told him that these days I'm changing my policy from catch and release to catch and grease. Herb Lewis, uh, Dr. Herb, stopped by and reminded me that we're constantly reinventing ourselves. The stuff we're facing this day may prove to have some positive benefits on the other side, like folks who never knew how to cook, discovering unknown talents. Judy Pope wants everyone to take a moment and look out their window. She says, I know God is with us. Just look at the emergence of spring, the flowering crab apples and the beautiful tulips coming forth. My 
partner in crime, uh, one of the ministers that ministers with me, Jan Walsh, says she's working from home using online teaching to help her students complete the school year. She reminds everyone to remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who endured the fiery furnace with the Lord's help. Lisa Wall came by. She's also working from home. Emily already misses school, and Derek and Brandon continue to protect us all as firefighters. We both, by the way, are experiencing bad hair days. Maxine Crane was in good spirits. She's managing well, but we but we wondered together how Danny would have done through this, not being one to be easily cooped up. My mom, Mary McGathy, is listening to the worship all the way down in Freeport, Florida. She wants everyone to know the sun came up this morning and everything is in God's hands. Also heard back from Herb, he emailed me, and the Sunday school teacher that he is wrote me something he read from Eric Hoffer. It's a good quote. Listen to this. In times of profound change, the learners inherit the earth while the learned find themselves beautifully equipped to deal with a world that no longer exists. Royce and Richardson and Marguerite stopped in to say hi. They were helping others that day and were remembering the church and its ministry to our community. Mona Price stopped by too. She was thankful for the ways we're finding to help keep our community together, though we are apart. She was interested in how the simple radio app can make the reception of the broadcast pretty easy on a cell phone. Later on, she called me to tell me she had bought an AM radio from Walmart. So glad you're listening, Mona. Teresa Wilson has been asking for prayers for her daughter, Danette. Danette had to go to the hospital this week. She has gone back to Jacobs Creek now, but Teresa wants all to continue to remember her in prayer. She found an old transistor radio to listen to the broadcast, but the knob broke off and she has to remove the batteries to make it turn off. Barry Dodson called the church office to check on me and to let me know of his love and support for our community during this time. His family, by the way, are all doing well. Sybil Beaver stopped in to collect contributions for the Hands of God Pantry. She left a list to remind everyone that she that the need goes on and that they could especially use tomato soup, mac and cheese, peanut butter, sweet peas, pork and beans, and ramen noodles. You know you can drop those things off right in front of the church Monday through Thursday mornings, 9 to 12. Dick and Vicki Boyer are hunkering down. Cruise ships are out of the picture for right now. Gray Johnson wants us to know if there are any who need help, he's going to try. He's not going to let this thing keep him from ministry to others. Jatana Love wants everyone who has given flowers to know that she will adjust the schedule, so hang in there. Sylvia Perkins is not in the office next week, but she sends love and blessings to all. Joyce Fulcher reminds us all that knitting prayer shawls has stress-reducing effects. And Maxine, Maxine Crane, by the way, dropped off a beautiful pink and white creation this week. The work of prayer goes on. My boys, Michael and Kevin, one in the Navy and the other in the Marines, are both safe on their bases. Liberty has been secured, though. Michael says the Navy has secured haircuts for now. But Kevin says high and tights are still in in the USMC. Lloyd Bear says, keep the faith. Mabel Baird says she's thankful that the Lord led us to this town 52 years ago. Is a real key to our happiness. Elnora Howell says that the way this town has responded has been marvelous. 
She also wants everyone to know that regardless of what comes along, God takes care of it. And let me conclude this segment with a good thought from Brenda Platt. She says, hang in there. This too will pass. Now let's get those Bibles ready again for a time of radio, Bible, study, and school. This is Lessons from the Creation Story, and it covers Genesis 1 through 2, 4. Picture in your mind this scene. You're sitting in the company of a group of wilderness travelers. It is evening, and the barren landscape of rocks and treeless mountains are illuminated by a vast canopy of millions of stars. As the nomadic people gathered around a blazing fire to socialize on a chilly desert evening, we remember that this was the original way human beings interacted with one another. We must try to imagine their world without cell phones, television, the internet, radio, even books were not yet invented. The way they learned, the way that knowledge was passed from young to old was mainly through campfire stories. The first ten and a half chapters of the Bible are what we might call uh, prehistory, building us up to the moment that we're ready to hear the story in a theological term. So the translation I'm suggesting for this encounter with Genesis is from Eugene Peterson's The Message. Like the ancients, we want to learn about God. What does this first story teach us about God and our relationship to Him? It contains age-old lessons that I believe make as much sense today as they did for the ones who first heard them. Imagine you have never heard the story before. As the sparks of the blazing fire ascend into the night sky, an elder of the community steps forward and begins to speak as you hear this story for the first time. First this, God created the heavens and the earth. All you see, all you don't see. The earth was a soup of nothingness, a bottomless emptiness, an inky blackness. God's spirit brooded like a bird above the watery abyss. God spoke light and light appeared. God saw that light was good and separated light from dark. God named the light day. He named the dark night. It was evening. It was morning, day one. God spoke sky. In the middle of the waters, separate water from water. God made sky. He separated water under the sky from the water above the sky. And there it was. He named sky the heavens. It was evening. It was morning, day two. God spoke, separate. Water beneath heaven, gather into one place. Land appear. And there it was. God named the land earth. He named the pooled water ocean. God saw that it was good. God spoke, earth, green up, grow all varieties of seed-bearing plants, every sort of fruit-bearing tree, and there it was. Earth produced green seed-bearing plants, all varieties, and fruit-bearing trees of all sorts. God saw that it was good. It was evening. It was morning. Day three. God spoke, lights come out, shine in heaven's sky, separate day from night, mark seasons and days and years. Lights in heaven's sky to give light to earth, and there it was. God made two big lights, the larger to take care of day, the smaller in charge of night. He made the stars. God placed them in the heavenly sky to light up earth and oversee day and night to separate light and dark. God saw that it was good. It was evening. It was morning, day four. 
God spoke. Swarm ocean with fish and all sea life. Birds fly through the air over earth. God created the huge whales and the swarm of life in the waters and every kind and species of flying birds. God saw that it was good. God blessed them. Prosper, reproduce, fill ocean. Birds reproduce on earth. It was evening. It was morning. Day five. God spoke. Earth generate life. Every sort and kind. Cattle and reptiles and wild animals. All kinds. And there it was, wild animals of every kind, cattle of all kinds, every sort of reptile and bug. God saw that it was good. God spoke, let us make human beings in our image, make them reflecting our nature so they can be responsible for the fish in the sea, the birds in the air, the cattle, and yes, earth itself, and every animal that moves on the face of the earth. God created human beings. He created them God-like, reflecting God's nature. He made them male and female. God blessed them, prosper, reproduce, fill the earth, take charge, be responsible for fish in the sea and birds in the air for every living thing that moves on the face of the earth. Then God said, I've given you every sort of seed-bearing plant on earth and every kind of fruit-bearing tree, given them to you for food, to all animals and all birds, everything that moves and breathes. I give whatever grows out of the ground for food, and there it was. God looked over everything he had made. It was so good, so very good. It was evening. It was morning, day six. Heaven and earth were finished down to the last detail. By the seventh day, God had finished his work. On the seventh day, he rested from all his work. God blessed the seventh day. He made it a holy day because on that day, he rested from his work. All the creating God had done. This is the story of how it all started, of heaven and earth when they were created. God is the creator. That is the first and foundational lesson from the beginning of the Bible. In their day, there was speculation about that. Some believed perhaps the heavens and the earth had always been. Other gods had come along, but they were not the original creators. Still others thought that the gods had in fact created the heavens and earth, but it had been a cosmic accident that happened after a cosmic battle. Most folks, though, just didn't really know. That much is still true today. Many just don't know how our world and everything in it got started. They have ruled out God, but they don't have any other alternative explanation, not yet anyway. They suppose that one day science may figure it out, but until that day they just retreat into the ancient position of accepting that all of this has always been in some form or another. Lesson number one from the Bible is everything began, and it began with God. Close behind that is the acknowledgement that God had an order, a plan and creation. In other words, it came along in stages as part of a process. The world we now know, according to the tradition of our ancestors and preserved in Genesis, developed in a progression of events. That's what Genesis 1 tells us. But a deeper level, it also tells us that God is the creator behind all of it. Creation just doesn't happen apart from him. Neither is it a cosmic accident caused by quarreling gods. No, our world is just as described in the great hymn, This is our Father's world. He made it. It is his. We too are his creation. That is the proposition that the Bible begins with. It is a theological concept we accept by faith. Thus far, I've stated two theological ideas that are the point of the creation account. First, God is the creator, and second, that his creation is a progressive stage process. Last in that stage process is the introduction of human beings. 
People, too, are part of God's creation. They occupy a special role. Of humans, God expects and offers relationship. They are to care for the creation. They are part of it. He also expects humans to be in relationship, not only with one another, but with the environment. We are given by God the role of caretakers of our planet. Its health and welfare are part of our responsibility. The world is a garden we are to tend with care and not exploit and ravage, so it cannot thrive for future generations. Finally, how should we understand and live the lessons from Genesis concerning the environment? It breaks my heart that so many from outside our faith view our religion as hostile to the environment. I don't get that out of the theology of Genesis. In fact, I hear something entirely different. Did you know that when asked who we are as a church, I like to describe us as bound together by certain love priorities. Among these are love for God, love for the church, and love for the ones lonely for God. To that list, I long ago added this. Love for creation. The planet Earth is our only home. It was given to us by God not to be exploited or destroyed, but loved and cherished in a sacred act of stewardship. As Christians, we should lead the way in protecting the Earth and its inhabitants from harm. Therefore, we should always seek justice in how we treat and care for creation and the created. In the midst of a pandemic, is it possible that we can amend how we think and act toward nature? We need to let others know that this is our Father's world. We love Him, love others, and love the home He has given us. These are the lessons from the creation story that are just as needed now as they were when they were originally told. So believe. Be strong in your faith and in your witness. These are the lessons our entire world needs to hear and heed. It is up to us to pass the story along. Remember that next time you're sitting at a campfire with a friend looking up at the stars. I hope you'll celebrate Easter with us. We have communion available for you. If you'll come by the church Monday through Thursday, 9 to 12, you can pick up uh, communion or you can provide it for yourself at home. I hope you'll look up our website, www.firstbaptistchurchofmadison.org. And if you can, pass along the good news of this broadcast. Contribute if you can and always pray for God's people. And now I'd like to end with our benediction. No matter what you have done, or become a promise to be. Never forget that God made you, knows all about you, and loves you unconditionally. May his divine love change you from the inside out. And when it does, you'll know what grace really is. Even more realize that this pervasive, persistent, and powerful force called grace is the best thing you'll ever discover. And when it finds you, your eyes will be open and you will see there's nothing but grace. This has been Dr. Chuck McGathy from the First Baptist Church of Madison a radio broadcast, wishing you a wonderful week. Yeah, take your time.